you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Peace, hope, joy. These are three themes, three words, three things that we have been focusing on from Scripture as we celebrate the Advent season. Today, we're focusing on joy. We heard about the joy of a man who had his sins forgiven in that depiction as Jonathan shared that with us. So we're going to talk about the joy of salvation today from the Word of God. And we're going to see what the Scriptures say about the theme of joy. Let's start in a word of prayer first. And we'll just focus on God as... We seek His face through His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this season. We thank You for the privilege and the opportunity that we have to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord God, as we approach Christmas Day, with all of the the trimmings and the presents and the parties and the fellowship. Lord God, I pray that we would not be so busy with those things that we would not focus in on the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior, but that we would really, with great gravity this year, appreciate why Christ came and what He did for us at His coming. God, we just pray that as you take your word and impact our hearts and lives today, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you want us to know and learn, what you want to convict us about, that we would be doers, not just hearers only. Be with us now in Christ's name, amen. Joy or rejoicing, those two words go together in Scripture. One writer kind of described joy as not just a feeling, though we do experience the emotion or feeling of joy, but that it's an action. And we see that in the words joy or rejoicing, which are used over 400 times in the Bible, making that one of the major themes throughout Scripture. Psalms uses joy or rejoicing 80 times. The Gospels use it 40 times, just between those two groups of books. So joy is an important thing to talk about from the Word of God. And it's important for us to focus on today. And C.S. Lewis actually said about joy... And I'm going to read this quote a couple times because it's C.S. Lewis and sometimes he's a little more advanced than I'd ever be. But he says this in describing joy. He said, said it this way. Joy is an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Got that? I don't know. It took me a couple times to get it just his way of wording it, but he says, I'll read it again, joy is an unsatisfied desire 
which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. He goes on. He says, it must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and from pleasure. It must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. He was talking about this because he was talking about joy that he experienced because he came to faith in Jesus Christ. See, God is the true source of joy. And we're focusing in on joy today. And we want to make sure that we look at it from a biblical perspective. And we heard the depiction from Jonathan talking about a man who was paralyzed, who the Bible tells us is healed by Jesus, but we learn that the healing of his body is not the most important aspect of that story. Before we get into it in Mark chapter 2, I want to just read Psalm 32, because the psalm writer talks about the joy of salvation and the joy that comes from forgiveness of sins. He says in verse 1, he says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit no deceit is found. And then he goes on. He's talking about that because God forgave him of his sin. And he's rejoicing in God's forgiveness. We want to see that in Mark chapter 2 here as we look at this encounter that this man has with the Lord Jesus. You could actually see this account also in Matthew chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 5, I believe. I don't have it actually written here, so I'm kind of going from memory. But both Matthew and Luke recount this um, interaction with this man and Jesus. Matthew's is a pretty short account. Mark's and Luke's are a little bit more robust. I want to read Mark's account here because I think it's absolutely important that we understand first and foremost that God is the source of all joy, and that joy can only be experienced first and foremost through a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we see that actually with this man here, and in chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, When he, Jesus, entered Capernaum again after some days. Matthew actually tells us that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he was no longer living in Nazareth, his hometown, but that he had actually moved to Capernaum and he was living there. Mark actually tells us that he was actually at home. So the home that he was living in or staying in when he wasn't out traveling, teaching, and performing miracles, he was actually at this home. And so on this particular occasion, he was back in Capernaum, and it says he was reported that he was at home. And so so many people gathered together that there was no room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. Jesus taking the time, sitting down with any of these folks that came, and he was teaching them the Word of God. Likely, based on other passages of Scripture, I would argue that he was taking the Old Testament Scriptures and helping them see from the Old Testament Scriptures who he was and why he came. And as Jesus is teaching them the Word, it says, they, they came to him bringing a paralytic. Them, as Jonathan's depiction describes their friends of his. In fact, Scripture just says that it's 
some men. Probably not just a bunch of strangers on the street seeing a paralyzed guy going, hey, you should probably take this guy to Jesus. Likely probably friends of his. These friends carry their paralyzed friend and they bring him to Jesus. Here's the problem. In their endeavor to bring him to Jesus, they discover they can't get him to Jesus. In verse 4, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. They don't have houses like us, so sometimes it's a little bit difficult to understand how that would happen. They had an outside stairwell that got up to the flat roof where there would have been a terrace, and that was a first century home, would have been mud or plaster and such that they could dig down through, and that's what they did. They were so desperate to get their friend to Jesus that they dug right through the roof and lowered him down. The passage tells us in verse 5, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This is a beautiful account for the simple fact that Jesus addressed the biggest problem that this man had, his fundamental problem, and that was that he was a sinner before a holy God. Did he need to be healed? Sure, from a physical perspective. This man was desperate for healing. He could not walk. He was bound to this mat that he was always perpetually lying on. He couldn't do anything for himself. And yet Jesus addresses the greatest need that this man has, and it's not his healing. It's his sin. Notice that in Mark's account, as in Luke's account, on one of the previous occasions when we were talking about the lady who had the blood disease, where her faith saved her, and then Jesus says, go and be healed. Faith and salvation go hand in hand. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ brings about salvation. It's no different here in Mark's account. He sees the faith of these men We're not given the specifics of who their faith is. So we work under the assumption based on what Jesus says to this paralyzed man. It's not just the faith of his friends, it's the faith of the paralyzed man. And seeing their faith, he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. The beginnings of joy entering into the life of this man because it comes first and foremost through a personal relationship with God. God is the source of all joy. And that's the first thing that I want us to see is that joy results from life with God. We see that here. We actually see that these people glorify God because of the events. But I want us to just stay here for a minute. Based on Psalm 32, based on what this man experienced, based on other passages of Scripture, joy comes with salvation. In Psalm, uh, excuse me, in 1 Samuel 2 Verse 1, Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Joy comes through salvation. Habakkuk 3.18, Habakkuk says this, Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. 
How about Luke chapter 1, verse 46 and 47? Mary says this after she finds out that she has the privilege of giving birth to the Messiah, the Savior. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Excuse me. My, Mary says this, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. See, Mary knew that she needed a Savior just like everybody else. And at the news that the Savior was going to be born and that God blessed her to be a part of that, she rejoiced in God, her Savior. How about Acts 13, 52? It says the discipline, the, excuse me, the disciples were filled with, the, with joy and the Holy Spirit. When we trust Christ as Savior, when we have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, we also have joy that comes with that salvation and that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13 says this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we believe, we're filled with joy. Joy comes from God. Comes through salvation. See, this man encountered Jesus for the first time and experienced salvation from his sins, and he experienced joy. Joy actually was declared and talked about at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at his birth. If you look at Luke chapter 2, and you don't need to turn there, but I'll read it. Luke chapter 2. Very familiar passage. We're going to be reading it probably as families, hearing it at church as we approach Christmas Day. Chapter 2, verse 8, it says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And then he goes on. Joy was proclaimed at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that again sometime after those events when the wise men come and visit the child in the home. As they're talking to Herod, they actually describe the star that they followed as his star, the Messiah's star. And it says in verse 9, it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And in verse 10, and when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Why? Because they came to the place where the Messiah was. And it says in verse 11, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling down to their knees, they worshipped him. They were overwhelmed with joy when they found the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation comes from God and brings joy into our lives. Joy is not found in seeking it as its own end by itself. We need to understand that. Joy doesn't come because we seek out joy. Joy comes as we have a personal relationship with Almighty God. And God produces that joy in our lives. So important that we keep that in mind. You know, there's actually joy in heaven 
when a lost person gets saved? You ever thought about that? Jesus says that in the parable of the lost sheep in verse 7. He says, but I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Not only was this man going to experience joy in his life because he was forgiven of his sins and he came into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but there was joy in heaven when this man got saved. Joy comes from life with God. Let's keep on going, though, and finish up this story as we move on on a couple other things about joy so important that we understand the gravity of what Jesus said to this man and what's said after that. And I think it's just absolutely important that we understand this because if you're here this morning and you don't need to know Christ as Lord and Savior, you need to know that only Jesus can save you from your sin. You can come to church at Christmas time all you want. You can go to church at Easter. You can do all the good deeds that you want. You can give your money to the poor, and so on and so forth. And those are all great things, but that's not going to save you. Only Jesus can save you. Jesus was not just a mere man. He's God the Son, who came to die on the cross for sinners. It says after Jesus says that, some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus just said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, in that moment, claiming to be God. And right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves. And he said, why do you think these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Jesus makes a really great point here. As far as a human being is concerned, how would they know whether or not his sins were ever, ever forgiven? They couldn't tell that. They, they would have no way of evaluating that. Jesus says, which is actually more difficult. Since you're wrestling with this, you have no way of validating whether or not I've actually forgiven his sins. Wouldn't it be harder if I just said, hey man, get up, walk. And then look at verse 10, the beautiful words of Jesus. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus, the Son of God, had the authority to forgive sins because he's God. And he said, you want to know for sure that I can forgive sins? Why don't you get up, take your mat, and go home? And in that moment, Jesus healed this man of his paralysis. And immediately he got up and he took his mat and he went home in front of everyone. But you know what? As great as that healing was, it paled in comparison to what Jesus did for him just prior to that. Jesus saved him from his sin. That corruption of sin that was absolutely destroying his life and that would result in eternity apart from God. Jesus forgave him of his sin and gave him new life. And then Jesus just added gravy to that by healing him of his affliction. And he gets up and he walks home in front of everyone. And as a result, they all were astounded and gave glory to God, saying, 
we never saw anything like this. This guy makes me think of another individual in the New Testament. A beggar who was lame outside of the temple, and Peter and James and John were going to the temple, and he's asking for alms. And Peter says to him, silver and gold have I none. I, I, whenever I think of this passage of Scripture, there's a little song that my brothers and I heard sung. And uh, we kind of sing it sometimes. But it makes maybe a little bit light of the situation, but it always comes to my mind. And it's the phrase, silver and gold have I none. But that's not the important thing. Peter says that he is something more important than that for this lame beggar. And that's salvation through Jesus Christ. And then he heals him. And the guy says that he goes off leaping and praising God. He's rejoicing because he came to know Christ as Savior and he was healed. I wonder if this guy didn't leap and praise God as he was leaving, even though Mark doesn't record that for us. Rejoicing because he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. Number two, joy triumphs in the midst of trials. I think it's important that we understand joy triumphs in the midst of trials. Acts 16, 25 to 34 shares this with us. And I want to read this. Because it actually harkens back to what we've already talked about in the midst of all of this. What I do need to say is this. We understand because the Bible talks about it and we experience it in life that there are times when we experience deep sorrow. We're not saying that we don't experience deep sorrow as we talk about joy. There are times when we face loss and we experience situations and it just breaks our heart and we are experiencing deep sorrow. There are times in the Psalms when the psalm writer talks about deep sorrow, lamentations, it talks about it. There are other instances in Scripture where there is deep sorrow that is experienced by the people of God. We understand that. We're not minimizing that. We're not taking away from that. There are times when, when that is the case. But the Bible makes it clear that we can still experience joy in the midst of trials. Because joy is not based on our circumstances. It's based on Almighty God. And in Acts 16, we see a situation where Paul and Silas were in prison. And in verse 25, it says, At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, if I left it there and I just read that verse, you would say, well, okay, that's not a big deal. Sure, Paul and Silas, they probably sang and prayed a lot. But if we understand the situation, it helps us understand a little bit more the gravity of what's going on as they pray and sing to God. Just prior to that, as they've been preaching the gospel in the community and people getting saved, it really caused a disruption in the entire city to the point where there was a riot. There was a mob that wanted these guys. It says the crowd joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped them of their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they threw them in jail ordering the, jailing, the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet with stocks. This was the situation that Paul and Silas are in, 
when they pray and sing praises to God. They just got been, they've just been brutally beaten and thrown in prison for what? Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who desperately need to hear about Jesus. Many of us, if we were honest, we, we might say, you know what, I, I'm not sure if I was in that situation, I'd be singing and praising God and praying. I might be praying. Not sure I'd be praising God. I might be complaining an awful lot. And yet Paul and Silas were singing hymns and praying to the Lord, and the prisoners were listening to them. I would argue that Paul and Silas were endeavoring in the midst of their trials to focus on the one who can bring them joy, the one who can give them peace and hope in the midst of that, who may or may not deliver them, but who is always with them, will never leave them nor forsake them. And they're singing and they're praying, and it has a profound impact. Watch this. It says, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately the doors were open and everybody, everybody's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw that the doors of the prison were standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought that the prisoners had all escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice and said, don't harm yourself because we're all here. That in and of itself is amazing that they're still sticking around. But he says, don't do that. Then the jailer called for the lights, uh, rushed in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I have to say that I'm personally convinced that their testimony before the Lord in the midst of this situation had a huge impact on this jailer. To bring him to the place where, and maybe, I'm, I'm sure the earthquake had a little something to do with it, but this man rushes to the two guys that know how he can be saved. How can I be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Message is no different today to you that it might be sitting here that don't know Christ as Savior. I implore you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house, and that he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds right away. He and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because they had come to believe in God with his entire house. Salvation came to this man in his family, and they rejoiced because they were saved. You know, joy triumphs in the midst of trials. James says it in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, count it all joy. In my translation, it says, count, consider it great joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. And we do experience various trials. You could be facing the trial of a serious illness that's impacting your, your health, or maybe a family member. You may be experiencing trials when it comes to your own emotional and mental condition. The depiction of Jonathan with this paralyzed guy and the anxiety and the anger and the frustration and all of that that he 
encountered. And no doubt that man probably did. You may be experiencing trials in your family. You may be experiencing another kind of trial. How can James say, consider it great joy, brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials? How can he say that? Because he knows the result of that. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete, lacking nothing. See, when we count it all joy, when we experience various trials, and the Lord uses those trials to refine us and produce endurance in our lives, He matures us. We can, in fact, have joy in the midst of our trials when we know what God is accomplishing through those trials in our lives. Number three, joy is a fruit produced by the Holy Spirit. As we said, we don't, look after, we don't look for joy in and of itself. It's produced by God in our lives. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And a, and, and a couple aspects of that, just so that you understand, it is a fruit that is produced in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Part of that is that we can have joy produced in our lives as we get to know God's Word better. Psalms 119, 16, 111, 162 actually say things like this. Let me read some of these verses just so that you understand. I don't just stand up here and say, hey, we should really read our Bibles every day and get into them for something to say. I don't endeavor to read my Bible and spend time in it every day because it's just something that the pastor is supposed to do. It's because I want this kind of attitude that the psalm writer has. Verse 11, this is what the psalm writer says, I will delight in your statutes, and I will not forget your word. I want that. I want to have that attitude about God's word, that I delight in all of his word, and that I won't forget it. What else does he say? Verse 111, For your decrees... Excuse me, I have your decrees as a heritage forever. Indeed, they are the joy of my heart. Is the word of God the joy of your heart, Christian? How about 162? I rejoice over your promise like one who finds vast treasure. We have so many promises in God's word. Do we rejoice over them? Do we rejoice of them as if they were a vast treasure? We spend an awful lot of time pursuing treasures that don't matter. And we don't bother to look at God's word and say, look at the promises that God's given me in his word, and these are the, my treasure. Rejoice in them. You no, know, worship brings about joy. As I said, one writer says that joy is a feeling, but it's also an action. And as we sing praises to God, it actually produces joy in our lives. How can it not when we sing praises to Almighty God and reflect on what God has done for us? How can we not have joy? When we know that Jesus stepped down out of heaven and he came as a little baby, he grew up, lived a sinless life, he died on the cross in our place, to save us from our sinfulness. As we look at our sinfulness before God, all the things that we think, all the things that we say, all the attitudes that we have that are just an affront to God. And to know that Jesus took all of our sin on himself 
He bore the punishment that we deserved. So that when we put our faith and trust in him, we're forgiven of our sins forever, past, present, future. We get to spend eternity with God Almighty. How can we not rejoice in that? Luke chapter 24, verse 52 talks about that. James 5, 13 talks about that. I could go on. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to rejoice in, Christians. I just want to challenge us before we move into our communion time. We've already heard what Christ has done for us. I want to say this. If you don't know Christ as your Savior and you're here today, you can pursue happiness, but it's only based on your circumstances. And when things go bad, happiness is gone. And you can pursue this pleasure and that pleasure, but you know, it's going to be fleeting and it'll never bring satisfaction. If you want real joy, joy only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you have to today acknowledge your sinfulness before God and say, Jesus, save me from my sin. I believe that you died for me. Christian, one of the things that Scripture makes abundantly clear is that if we have unconfessed sin in our lives, it impacts us. It impacts us deeply. It impacts our walk and our fellowship with the Lord, but sometimes it actually has physical ramifications, and it actually robs us of the joy that we should be having. David says this in Psalm 53. Actually, in Psalm 32, he continues to even talk about this, but Psalm 51, he says this, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be made clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed, crushed rejoice. What, what David's saying is this, when I was in sin, and I wasn't confessing that sin, and I was actually living in really re- rebellion against you, God, because I, I had sinned, and I wasn't confessing that sin. He said, it was like you were crushing my bones. He says elsewhere in the Psalms that it was like his bones were drying up. And he was lacking joy because God was disciplining him. And he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out my guilt. Here he is, he's confessing his sin. God, can re- forgive me of my sin. I've sinned against you. I've violated your standards. He says, God created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Christian, if you're here and you have sinned against God and you haven't confessed it, and you may be saying, I don't seem to have joy like I had before. It's because you need to confess your sin before God. And as David says, restore, as he said, restore the joy of your salvation to me. I implore you to do that.